I just yesterday I got back a response from Marcus, and I asked him if I could pass it on to you, and of course he was encouraging me to do so. But just a little note that he wrote in an email that I got just yesterday, and he says this, the, la- the labor is slow, but we continue to see the Lord working in tangible ways in the lives of his people and trust that he is slowly drawing the elect to himself. Isn't that wonderful? God is working in tangible ways in the lives of his people and drawing to himself all those that are the elect. And to borrow from the words of the Apostle Paul, we say this, but thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. And so we just rejoice in what God is doing. And we'd say with you what the psalmist says in Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to thy name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. We have the truth of God given to us and scripturated in the Word of God we call the Bible. And so would you turn with me as we look together? We're going to be going together to Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you just prepare for that. I'm so thankful. Thank you, John. Thank you, elders, for the privilege to be able to come. We are always overflowing with thankfulness to God when we gather together to fellowship with you as his people. And before we approach the text, I want to ask you a question to prepare your hearts to think about where we're going this morning. The question is a vital question. It is a question of massive proportions. And it is this. What one thing can you, Christian, pursue that will make the most of your life now and for eternity? Or we could phrase it like this. What singular, singular aim must you have to maximize every moment of every day for the glory of God. Well, God addresses very clearly this consuming call in his love letter given to us in the scriptures. And so let's look together at Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. And here we see before our eyes what is clearly the greatest commandment ever given by God to his people. It is a superlative statement given from God to us. It is of paramount priority. It is a dominating demand, the most compelling command ever spoken by God to man. So let's look together with eagerness of heart at God's word in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them. When you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We thank God for this, his living word that is life-changing. Well, here we see Moses has penned these words to to rivet in the minds of God's people what must be their ultimate priority, their ultimate pursuit. The date is around 1400 B.C. when Moses penned these words under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And we know the history goes like this. The Israelites had just finished 40 long years of wandering in the desert. And now here they are poised to launch out into a whole new start in the land of promise the promised land. Yet before they receive the blessings of God that he's told them are coming, 
They're here told to look into God's most vital instruction to them. And so too, Christian, for you to experience the greatest blessing of God, you must zero in on your greatest responsibility from God. For the Jews, these verses have been, for them, for now 3,000 years, the most important text of all Scripture. You ask any Jew that you're into, believer or unbeliever, in terms of saved or unsaved, what is the most central, key, focal text of all the Scriptures? And they will say, it is this. Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. It is the Shema. The Shema, that means listen. Pay attention to what is here because it is of vital importance. Massive text, so important for us to understand. Now, Jesus himself makes that very same assessment. This is the greatest statement ever given by God to people to understand this is the ultimate concern and command for all people of all times. One day in Jerusalem, the Pharisees, they try to trap Christ. They try to trip him up in his words. And so they say, are we supposed to pay the poll tax to Rome or not? They thought they had him. And you remember the story how it goes in Matthew 22. Christ says, who has the coin? The coin that was used for the poll tax. And they look at it and he says, then you pay to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and to God the things that are God's. Well, the Pharisees hated Christ and so did the Sadducees. And so they were there that very day. And they tried their attempt to throw a question at Christ that they thought he could not deal with. They tell him a situation, probably a true situation, about a lady who has seven different husbands. And each of those husbands die. And the question that follows goes like this. In heaven, Christ, then, who will be the one who will be the husband of her? Who will be her husband? What does Christ do? He turns the tables on them, the Sadducees, and he answers that in heaven, there's no marriage. whole different paradigm there. The enemies of Christ are now 0 for 2. One were miss, and Christ strikes them out. So the Pharisees still there. They put their heads together for a better game plan now to stump Christ. You know what happens? They get their guru in the law, their expert, the lawyer, to go after Christ, to ask the question that they thought would shut him down. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law, they ask. And here's why they think that Christ cannot answer their question. Because they know so clearly in the Torah, there are 613 commands, 613 different commands. 248 of those are positive commands, the do's. And 365 of those are the negative commands, the do nots. They're confident that Christ will not be able to single out one command of all those 613 as the greatest command, the supreme command. With no delay, with no deliberation, with no discussion, Christ replies. And he puts before them the supreme command. Matthew 22, 37. He declares, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Where does Christ get these words? From the Shema. From Deuteronomy 6, our text that we look at this morning. Christ's words that day don't just confound his enemies. They compel us to love God like never before. This Old Testament text isn't just for Israel. 
it is for us, brothers and sisters in Christ, this morning. So let's look together. Follow along closely now as we dig into this wonderful passage together before us in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let me give you a brief roadmap where we're going in terms of a plan, outline, if you will, so you can follow along as we move together through this text. First of all, we will see the prized possession in verse 4. The prized possession. And that moves us to then our paramount passion in verse 5, which results in the practical pursuit in verses 6 through 9. The prized possession in verse 4. The paramount passion in verse 6. Excuse me, verse 5. And then the practical pursuit in 6 through 9 as we work through this together. Look at the text. If you're there, please look, go with me if you're not yet. I think you all are there. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. It proclaims at the very outset what must be our prized possession. And it grabs our attention, as it were, like with a trumpet blast. It calls us to pay attention. It's Shema, like I mentioned earlier. It tells us to listen, follow, pay attention to what's coming after this. And so we ask, what then must we pay attention to? First of all, Moses says that the Lord, that's Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of his people, he, the Lord, is our God. First statement made in the Shema. Now this shows us something wonderful about God. It shows us he has made himself personally known to whom? To his people. He is the God who has shown himself, revealed himself, manifested himself to his own people. He is the one who has initiated a relationship with those he chose for himself. And it was all because of what? Because of God's prior love for us, that he called us out of people, all of the lost people. And he did the same for his covenant people, Israel, from all the nations to be his own. Now look ahead in the next chapter, chapter 6. So once you see this, God is a choosing God. God decides who will be his own, who will be his people. Chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. Amazing. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Verse 7. So beautiful. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the prophets of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why were they God's people? Simply because it tells us here he loved them. And because he loved them, he chose them. He made them. He decided that these will be my own. And as it were, he drew and encircled them with his love. That's the Old Testament picture of the love of God, choosing those that will be his people. The same we see in the New Testament. Christ tells his own. John 15, verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And so too, this morning, child of God, it's the very same with us. You have been captivated by the love of God, not because of your brilliance, not because of your studies, not because of your background. It's because God first chose you. It was his doing, not yours. He chose you for himself, Ephesians 1, 3, when? 
from the foundation before the foundation of the world. God never responds to man. God chooses and man responds to God's prior choice. He made it possible, men and women, for you to personally know him. He made himself to be your God, your personal God. And in so doing, when God chose you, what did he give you? He gave you everything pertaining to life and to godliness, nothing short of that. What does it mean this morning to us? What does it mean to be those that have been chosen of God, to be able to say, he is my God? It means you have the nearness of God. It means you have the wisdom of God. It means you have the comfort of God. You have the love of God, the friendship of God. It means you have all the forgiveness of sins because of the one who chose you. It means you have the unending privilege of prayer, and you have eternal hope because of God's saying, you'll be mine. Look on in verse 4. God reveals something else so wonderful about his person to us right there. We are not only told the Lord is our God, but what? The Lord is, what do you say have in your text? The Lord is, say it please, one. The Lord is one. This powerfully affirms the very first commandment in Deuteronomy 5 verse 7. That's, this is the repetition from Exodus 20. What is the reason for the bold proclamation and prohibition? You shall have no other gods before me. Why? It's because all other small g gods are a lie. They're not real. They're imaginary. There is only one true and living God. And Moses puts it like this in Deuteronomy 4, verse 35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord... He is God. There is no other besides him. None. One and one only. And further in Deuteronomy 4, verse 39, Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Period. Now back to our text in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Would you notice that word one? One. The Lord is one. That's echad in the original, and it is key. And follow with me. Every word in Scripture matters. Every detail of God's word matters. Because one Lord here powerfully contrasts God with all imaginary deities of polytheism. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, every pagan nation had their multiple God, multiple gods. But here we see that God is set apart from all the rest. God alone here is declared as a sole monarch of the universe. He is the ruler of all, of the cosmos, who is infinite, who is eternal, and immeasurably higher than any other creature. God is absolutely holy. He is completely perfect, and in him there is no darkness nor taint of evil. This is our God who has made us his own. God is the source of all that has been or ever will be. You see, there's none like our God. There's none that can compare with him. Before the temple was dedicated, in 1 Chronicles 17, before it was even built, God makes his unconditional covenant to David that he through David would establish his eternal throne and it would happen through one who would come after David, and that would be Jesus Christ, his descendant. And David, in hearing the words of God, is overwhelmed with thankfulness and praise of God's greatness. And David says this there in 1 Chronicles 17, 20. 
He cries out, O Lord, there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. God, we have never heard of anyone that can compare with you, the one true God. None like you. He understood and is gripped by the reality that God is one of a kind. He is unlike any other in heaven or on earth. Now, the word one, I told you, echad. Let's circle back to that. I discovered in my studies as I prepared for this, that one here is also used of an individual who will in the future reign over all the world. Same word, one. Zechariah 14, verse 9. Listen to it. And the Lord will be king over all the earth, and that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name, the only one. Who here is this that is being spoken of? Who is the only one that is called the Lord? There is none other that can fulfill the statement than our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see Zechariah saying, This coming one who will follow in David's rulership is the absolute God with whom none can compare. That term echad also indicates, this is fascinating, a compound unity. A compound unity. It points to the three persons of the eternal Godhead. That's the one of whom we'd love to sing God in three persons, blessed Trinity. This is our God. There's a beautiful illustration in Exodus when they built the temple, the tabernacle rather. Exodus 26, verse 6. Such meticulous planning as God reveals how he wants the tabernacle to be built. There were to be 50 golden clasps that were used to hold the curtains of the tabernacle together so that that great tent could be one. Fifty class to make one, one curtain. So we have here a unity of one comprised of various individual parts. And this is the wonder of wonders. It's not just that God is one divine essence revealed in three distinct persons. It is this. is that he is the one, the only true God, who has given all of himself to us as his people. There it is. He has given us himself completely. In God, we have a strong Father. In God, we have a victorious Savior. In God, we have a blessed Comforter, the Holy Spirit. And therefore, in God, we have the treasure beyond measure. We have the most prized possession that He's given us, not in all the stuff, but in Himself. Friends, it's not just from God, but watch it now, but it is in God that we have it all. In Him, we, have, we lack nothing. But we, just like Israel, we have the same problem. We're forgetful. We tend to forget the greatest treasure that God has given to us in himself. And as we forget, we are unwittingly enticed by false gods, idols. Years ago, before the Czech Republic, so you know, I ministered in the Philippines. And as you know, the Philippines is filled with Catholics, about 80% Catholics. And our first year, we were in language school in a little village of Baliwag, Bulacan. And we would meet people. We'd see virtually every village, everywhere you look, you see traces of idolatry in that land. They go hand-in-hand with Catholicism. In our town, we'd see them carve life-size idols. Weird, strange, demonic stuff would happen. And this one lady named Norma, she told us about her idol, what would happen to it, what it would do for her. She said it was about a foot tall. 
she would speak to it, ask it questions. She said in response to the questions, it would move back and forth. And we're like, our eyes are getting big. We're thinking, this is bad stuff. This is awful. This is demonic. We were repulsed by the idolatry that we saw there in that village and that lady, as she described that, in the idols that she worshipped. But watch this. We are not those that perceive and understand and see idolatry in our own lives. We miss it. We don't realize that God speaks to us to be those that understand and see that we have a problem also with idolatry. Where? In our hearts. In our hearts. In Ezekiel 14, God, through his prophet, Ezekiel, shows us where the battle rages over idolatry in every one of us this morning, whether we perceive it or not. Listen carefully. In Ezekiel 14, the first three verses. Then some elders of Israel came to me and sat down before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols, listen carefully, in their hearts, and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. You see, their idols were not made of wood or stone or clay or metal. They were not even representations in the form of pictures. God says they are idols of the heart. Idols of the heart. What is an idol of the heart? How would we describe that? Very simply, it is this. An idol of the heart is anything that fascinates your heart more than God. Anything that fascinates your heart more than God is an idol of your heart. Idols are people, pursuits, and preoccupations that dominate your thoughts, your desires, in place of God. They can be what you own or wish you owned and chase after. The French pastor and theologian John Calvin affirmed, the heart of man is an idol factory. The heart of man is an idol factory. Every one of us has the propensity to craft and crank out idols in our hearts. Good employment, houses, cars, health, fitness, savings, relationships, recreation, home projects, those have their place. And certainly we are called to be those that show great devotion in our marriages, to our families, in our friendships, and in the church. But Christian, we are called supremely to guard our hearts less in our time, in our spending, with our energies. All those good things overshadow God as our supreme treasure. Christian, watch out for excessive preoccupation to anything or to anyone that gives God the leftovers. Guard your heart against the lure of empty entertainment. The lure of empty entertainment. It is pervasive. It is everywhere. We don't even see it. We live in it. We're surrounded by it. See on sober alert against the seductiveness of social media that will suck you into a world consumed with self and leave God in the shadows. Church, realize that the problem with all these things isn't your desire, that your desires are too strong. It is that your desires are too weak, too weak. See, it works like this. When we give ourselves to the empty trinkets and trifles this world offers us, we miss the only one thing that fully, totally satisfies our souls, and that is God. And so, like the son of a wealthy king, who's out on the sandy beach shore making mud pies while his father has an entire banquet waiting for him. We're satisfied far too easily with anything but God. 
Friends, God has made you so that nothing and nobody can ever satisfy the deepest longing and craving of your heart but himself. That's a mark of a Christian. He or she longs for God, desires God. Only God can quench the greatest thirst of the soul because God has placed that thirst there and God satisfies that in himself. King David knew this so well, and that's why in Psalm 16, verse 11, he says and exclaims to God, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. God, you're everything. I need no more. And further, in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, there the writer Asaph, he asks a profound question, which he then answers. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart, they may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Beloved, how about you this morning? Can you say in all integrity before God, besides you, I desire nothing on earth? God, you're the only one that satisfies my soul. Hebrews 4 verse 13 says that God sees it all. He sees into our hearts. And he knows so well how we struggle with competing desires every day. And that's why he implores us to be those that are done with idols. To be done with the idols of the heart. The Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10 and 14, he warns us. He warns us with the local church there. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. The idea is run away from it, get as far away from idolatry as you can. It wasn't just the Apostle Paul who warned the saints against idolatry. The Apostle John, 1 John 5, 21, the final word, the final capstone in his first epistle goes like this. Little children, you know the text, guard yourselves from idols. Guard yourselves from idols. So beloved, keep at the forefront of your mind Tell yourself the truth that only God must be my greatest treasure. Only God can satisfy my soul's desire. Well, what then is to be our response to all that God has given us in himself? He, he, as our prized possession, must also be our paramount passion. Our paramount passion. And this is so wonderful. This is so heart-driven. By our God-given constitution. By the way that God put us together, the way God wired us, every right-thinking, normal, rational individual has to love something. It's divinely given by God. It could be a house, a sports car, trendy clothes, some new smartphone. It could be wealth. It could be a life dream. It could be liked and followed by others. If there is one supreme love that God has given us as his children, it is the capacity to love him. To love him. This is to be our paramount passion as believers. Look back to the text in verse 5. It shows us how that love for God is to dominate our lives. And remember Christ said, this is the greatest commandment we're looking at. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words here form the essence, foundation of the Christian life. Loving God in response to his prior and ongoing love for us. 
This is so indispensable for growing in our walk with God that Moses drives it home time after time after time in the book of Deuteronomy. Look, look forward to Deuteronomy 11. Look at the emphasis given to God's people to never veer from loving him as our prized and paramount passion. Deuteronomy 11 verse 1, such a clarion command. You shall therefore, what does it say? Love the Lord your God. He's already told them that. He's telling them that again. And then Moses, at the age of 120, he's facing death. He implores God's people, some two million of them, to embrace this vital commitment. Deuteronomy 30, verse 16, the end of his life. Look what he pours forth, longing that they will not forget this paramount focus and passion. I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you're entering to possess it. These are Moses' last last words to God's people. Don't forget, love God with all your lives. And then further in verse 19 of the same chapter, Deuteronomy 30, he he pleads with all the heavens. He says, I call heaven, and he pleads with earth, and I call earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live you and your descendants. How do you choose life? He says, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. What was first on the agenda that Moses repeats over and over again? Love God. Love God as his people. These words in this text are for us today. This is the supreme command given by God to us as his people. Love God. Love God. You ask, but how does that look to love God? How does it manifest itself? How do we grow in that? Look at verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Let's work through this. Let me give you some aspects of how this fleshes out in loving God. First of all, this kind of love that we are called to, to grow in, is a love for God that is intimate. It's an intimate love for God. You cannot tell in the English, but in the original language, every one of the personal pronouns, you or your, in our section, all the way up to verse 14, are constantly, very fascinating, not in the plural, you, like you as a group, but you individually, second person singular. God is speaking specifically to his followers individually. It speaks here of one's personal love for God. Second, from this text, the verb shall love used here, it's ahab. Ahab expresses a strong emotional attachment for the object of the affections. It's a long, it's a desire, a passion to be in the presence of that object of one's love. I want to be close to the one I love. There's an intimacy here. It's a compelling affection for someone else you long to spend lots of time with. Just about a month ago, I did a wedding. I officiated a wedding ceremony at the church in Michigan. It was my niece who married a gentleman from Mexico. Crazy situation. I won't get into all details, but there was no real... Hope they don't listen to this, but anyhow, uh, 
wedding, wedding coordinator ended up, my brother's there, part of the family, and he says, Peter, I think you're the wedding coordinator too, you know, the night before, dreadfully. You know, I was doing the ceremony, not the wedding coordination, but nonetheless, we made it through it. The, the Mexican uh, fiance had a request for me. He said, he said I want to give my vows in Spanish. I thought, that's great. He said, will you please read them for me first in Spanish, and then I'll repeat after you. I think, oh no, high school Spanish was decades and decades ago. Very difficult. I practiced and practiced and practiced the Spanish words, and I think it, he said the same thing, okay? Hope it matched, fine. Hope it worked out. But here's what's amazing. Before they gave their pledges to one another of their love for the rest of their lives, as God would grant them grace, they're like foot and a half away from me. It's kind of like, I'd like to step out of this, you know, and just let them enjoy the time, gazing eye to eye, just overwhelmed with affection for their soon-to-be spouse. The song La Vida was played. There was one thought in their minds, their, their, the heart of their affection, their spouse is supposed to be. And as the song La Vida was played, this Mexican, Josue, I had to call him by his Mexican name too, the whole wedding thing, Josue starts singing the song as well. He cared nothing about it, as if in his mind at that time, it was in his mind, there was nobody else in that room except his wife Hannah, wife-to-be. You see, he was dominated in the heart of hearts for her. This is the affection to which God calls us to be overwhelmingly preoccupied with God and God alone. This is the way we respond to his love for us. With all your heart, all. That word heart there is lebab. It speaks of, watch now, the true you, your inner person. In fact, it's very fascinating. The theological dictionary of the Old Testament tells us that this word ahab here is used when it's used in an abstract way, which it is here in Deuteronomy 6. It gives us, listen, the richest and most frequently used term for the totality of man's inner nature. Lebab, heart, means completely all of you. Nothing left out. It's total passionate given overness to the object of one's love. And then it says there in verse 5, with all your soul, nefesh, this points to the center of your personality, your desires, your self-consciousness. And with all your might, strength is the idea, this physical strength of your body. Isn't this neat? When God speaks to us, he speaks to us in complete totality. It's not just an ethereal sense of, you know, it's an it's a idea, concept. It's literally also within our very body. We're to love God completely. And here's what we must grasp of this. All of these, heart, soul, and might, you put them together and they show the highest degree of total commitment in loving God. It's loving God with your whole person, every part of your being Christian. Now this is very important. Friends, don't ever think your love for God is some contribution you give to Him on Sundays, your groups during the week, when you go to a conference. Those are wonderful things. God doesn't want just part of your life. He demands that there's all full, total commitment of your entire being to him. Total commitment. There's an old story, and it's not a true story, but it's a fascinating story. I love it. One of my favorite stories of a guy named Farmer Brown. John's heard and told it, I'm sure. I'm sorry if you've heard it last Sunday, okay? Farmer Brown wakes up one morning, and he has a desire. He wants a ham and egg breakfast. Ham and eggs for breakfast. So he goes to the farm animals and says, guys, I have a favor to ask of you. I want a special breakfast. I want ham and eggs. 
And in response, the chicken thought it was a good idea, and so I'd be gladly happy to produce some eggs for their breakfast. And then the, the uh, pig thought about the implications. And it says the chicken, for you, that's simply a contribution. For me, it means total commitment. Total commitment. You understand? His life. All right. For God's people, God says, I want total commitment. I don't want part of your life. I don't want just some percentage. I just don't want you to have time for me. God wants all of our lives, all of our minds, all of our hearts, all of our bodies offered to him as a living sacrifice. Romans 12, verse 2. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable spirit of worship, reasonable service of worship. Now let's work this out in our minds together. How this should play in terms of walking with Christ, with love, loving hearts that grow and soar in response. First of all, the love here in our text that God wants you to grow in is not just some external going through the motions. It is wholehearted and it is fueled and regarded by the passionate love for God. Second thing, the kind of love here we see is not measured, it's not calculated. It flows from being indebted to and abandoned to God. True love, listen now, true love makes the husband to be almost reckless as he approaches the engagement time, almost reckless in looking at his savings and thinking, I gotta get her a ring, I gotta get her an engagement ring, almost reckless in pulling out whatever he can possibly spare to purchase that diamond ring for his beloved. Thirdly, the biblical love we're talking about here for God cannot just be internal. It must be external. It must be visible. It must be seen. What does this mean? Christian means, first of all, the love of God we have in our hearts should be shown in our countenance. And the way we look in our faces, there should be happiness, thankfulness, smiles. It should be heard in our words. It should exude from our contagious devotion to our God. King Josiah was one of the greatest, actually the greatest king of Judah. And it says of him in 2 Kings 23, 25, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord, listen now, with all his heart. Same words. With all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, right from Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. According to all the love Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Wow. Josiah is the icon here presented for how we're to love God with our totality of our being. Beloved, how does your love compare to that, to King Josiah's? If you're like me, you likely realize how small your love for God truly is. How the affections of your heart often wane. Well, I pray that your heart, like mine, is humbled by how far you realize you need to grow in response to God's love for you. So let's ask, let's work this out. How? What are some specific, concrete ways that we can grow in response to God's love for us? First of all, realize that your love for God can only be in response to your understanding of His love for you. We can only love God if we understand the massiveness of his love for us and constantly refresh our understanding of that love that he's shown us. Romans 5.8, you've memorized it. You know it. You teach your kids that in Sunday school. Praise God. Have you, have you taken careful notice of the verb tense there? But God what? What's the next word? But God, it does not say demonstrated. 
That's past. It says, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What's Paul saying there? Paul's saying every moment of every day, if we think rightly about the cross that we have before us, we'll understand that that is a constant, ongoing demonstration of his love for us in his son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Apostle Paul, as he writes his massive epistle to the Ephesian church, he says in chapter 3, verse 19, in his prayer, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. It's beyond what we can comprehend, but he says God causes people to grow, causes them to more deeply understand the breadth and height and length of depth and depth of your love for them in Christ. There's one more incentive for taking steps in your love for God. It's not obvious in our text of Deuteronomy 6 because it's, it's so clear that we just read past it. We can't overlook it. What God is saying in our text, particularly in verse 5, how we're to love him is not presented as an option. It is a suggestion. It is a command which assures us of two things. Whenever God gives us a command as his people, it is for his glory and it is for our good. This is for the glory of God. This is for our good in him. And we can say it like this. The degree to which we thrive in our love for God determines the degree to which we are blessed by God. Oh, we love the blessings of God, right? God bless the kids today, bless our marriage, bless our church, have your way. But that flows from us walking in the understanding of how much God has loved us and responding to that love and loving him. Let's move on. This leads to now our practical pursuit, the prized possession, our paramount passion, and now number three, the practical pursuit. And this is where it really comes home to the hearts of those that want to walk in obedience to God's call. God here now gives us the hands-on means of showing our love for him. Look at verse 6. These words which I am commanding you today shall be where? On your heart. On your heart. What words is Moses talking about? It's what he has just repeated to Israel that day in chapter 5. He's just repeated the Ten Commandments the second time. Deuteronomy is all about reminders, and so he reminded them of the Ten Commandments. God's law, which represents all of his revelation to his people, what God wants of his people to follow and to obey. So what does it look like to have God's word on your heart? How, is that, how do you picture that? How do you pursue that? We might compare it to this. When a young man receives a love letter from the woman of his dreams that he's been courting. It's like, she's the one. You know, you guys remember that, right? Married men, right? Hopefully you don't forget that. Wonderful days. What does he do when he gets a note from her? He reads those sweet lines over and over and over again, right? He puts them in a file and real hard time. You know what? I've got to read this. Oh, right? She loves me so much. Those words from his sweetheart express the heart that she has for him. And he savors them as his prized friend. To have something on your heart means you meditate on it. Like the cow, you ruminate on it over and over again. You chew that cut to get out the most possible nutrients from that truth. Over and over again. You know so well in Joshua 1. Joshua takes the baton from Moses. God tells him, Joshua, you want to be successful? Then what do you need to do? He says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. 
for then you'll make your way prosperous, and then you'll have success. I hope you want a life of success. You should. That's God's desire. We pursue that. But how does that come? It comes through loving God by loving and meditating on His Word. The more you love and meditate on the greatness of God's Word, the more that you will obey it, the more that you respond to it, and the more you will show your love for God. Our precious Savior made that connection to His disciples in John 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will do what? You'll keep my commandments. It'll be seen. It'll be obvious. If you have a heart of love for me, disciples, you will therefore then obey what I'm telling you to do. This is the proof of our love for God, Christian, loving and keeping his word. There are some that say, oh, no, no, you know, it's bibliology, you know, Bible altar, you know, we're worshiping a book. No, no, no. You know, the book is the only means by which we understand the heart of God and his love for us. Therefore, we pursue it constantly, relentlessly. In a room the size this morning, I know that there are many of you, I would say, and I know many of you, that know the joy of loving and hiding God's word in your heart. That's your life commitment. It's your daily pursuit. And you have experienced what happens, how it changes your life, how it changes your thinking, how it keeps you far from sin. It gives you divine wisdom and encourages your heart in hard times. I would encourage you with this thought. May in the coming days you show an ever-growing and passionate love for God by loving his word with an even deeper intensity. It's fascinating. The Apostle Paul loved the word we see, and then it says later on in the book of Acts, and then he completely devoted himself to the word of God. That's God's call for us, to pursue even more that love relationship with him by even more intense commitment to his word of truth and love revealed to us in that book. May you be able to say with the psalmist who was so saturated with the word of God in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. Then what follows? It is my meditation all the day. All the day. You see, as we grow in our love for God, we think about it not just when we're in the word, not just when we're gathered on the Lord's day or throughout the week, but when we're on our own, wherever God might have us. God, it's my meditation all the day. For some of you this morning, God calls you to come to grips with your lack of desire, perhaps lack of discipline, in feeding on his word. Your desperate need is to ask God to give you an unquenchable appetite to drink in his truth from this book, the word of God. To live like those newborn babes described in 1 Peter 2, where it says that they long for the pure milk of the word so that by it they may grow in respect to salvation. May we never leave that passionate, loving pursuit to know God from his word. Growing in love for God isn't every man for himself. It's not just, okay, God, we've got to work this out. You know, give me greater love for God. It's beautiful how the church is a, is, a, is a sanctification that happens in a group setting process. We're to long not only for our own growth in loving God, but long as well for those around us in the church would also grow in more passionate loving him. Dads and moms, I call you to this. This is your primary parental duty given by God to you. To teach your children God's word. And I know you know this, but this is a reminder this morning. It is not the responsibility of the children's program. It's not the responsibility of those that are friends. It is the primary parental responsibility to sow and invest God's word in the lives of those precious children. Look at verse 7. That's what it says in our text, of our text, Deuteronomy 6. You, 
talking about parents now. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. What's he saying? All the day. There's never an off time when parents are not supposed to be investing God's word in the minds of those children. This is the paramount priority for those that God has given to steward children for a short time. And don't miss the word in our text. It says there, not just to be doing that, but how to teach them to the children diligently. Did you note that? Diligently. And a diligent investment of God's word in the lives and minds of the younger children requires much prayer, planning, perseverance, and desperate dependency dependency on God himself. God, give us wisdom. Help us to know how we ought to be helping these children understand who you are so that they love and prize you beyond anything else. Yes, dads and moms, you need full reliance upon God to do the job he's called you to do supremely by getting this book into their minds. This is your commitment to you by God. It is to be diligent. It is to be lifelong as you invest in them. Parents, God calls you to not only be prepared to do that, but to actively do that. Not just to have times together with, with them to read God's word and memorize God's word. Let me help you realize the book of Proverbs is not just sometime and then not. Where we, as parents, will be training the children. What does the author do so often? He says, son, come with me. Let me, sh- let me show you. Look, what do you see? He warns the son of loose women. He points the mind of his son back to the truth of God's word. You go that way, you take that path, and you go to relentless destruction. Don't go there, son. Don't go there. Proverbs 5, my son gave attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. Her feet, the loose woman, the prostitute, go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. Then reminds that son in verse 21, for the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. There is specific teaching of God's word from a father to a son. You watch rude, angry drivers flying by in the car on the highway. You have them here. We have them in Michigan. And instead of wishing you could call out, you know, fire from heaven to strike them, you know, and no one would know, or, you know, praying some imprecatory prayer under your lips, what should be the response be? You should have Christ's heart of concern. I, I'm guilty too. I should have Christ's heart of concern and remember that I need to see those drivers as Christ saw those scoundrel sinners around him in his day. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd in need of him. Parents, let me encourage you strongly. Don't get so wrapped up in your schedules, even in serving, that you neglect investing spiritually in your children. Over 2,300 years ago, wise old Socrates in Athens said this to the people. Could I climb the highest place in Athens, I would lift my voice and proclaim, Fellow citizens, why do you turn and scrape every stone to gather wealth and take so little care of your children, to whom one day you must relinquish it all? He's not even thinking in terms of what's ultimate, in terms of spiritually. But it's even saying, don't miss the eternal investment in the children, how much more for us as those that know and love God. How much more for us be those that show the children the truth of this text in Deuteronomy 6 to love God beyond all else. Look back with me at the text in verses 8 through 9. Look at the intensity of commitment to God's word that we're to show for love him with all of our hearts, souls, and might. 
You shall bind them, this is God's word, as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So intensely detailed, isn't it? Wonderful. The Jews literally did this. They wore the frontlets on their foreheads, which they called the tephilim or phylacteries. And many Orthodox Jews, especially in Michigan, our area, we have thousands of them. They wear these. You see them walking up and down the street to the synagogue. Actually, I found one of these phylacteries several months ago. It's fascinating. Someone just threw it on the side of the road. They include a little box in the front of this thing with four Old Testament texts, including this passage of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. And then they bind these leather, with leather straps to their foreheads, and they walk around that way. They began to also write parts of Scripture in parchment to roll it up and put it in a small case. They, they would have fixed their doors. They were called the mezuzahs. Now, for most, they became an empty symbol, a ritual, a veneer that meant nothing to their spiritual condition before God. And in Matthew 23, verse 5, Christ says to the Pharisees who did all the factory stuff and all that stuff, he says, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. Remember, it's the heart of love that God is after. Christ says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's all a show. God's word ought to be everywhere in our lives and minds. And reminders of God's word are so important because this is what the text is saying here. Place before you reminders that are tangible. They'll trigger your thoughts to the truth of who God is and how you're to live before him. Reminders of the truth of God's word should be in our homes. They can be on our home pages and on Facebook as well. But they must be far more than decoration that we just get used to. We just see and it doesn't register anything in our minds. All the reminders we're called to even in this text are to serve as constant reminders of God who calls us to love him with all of our lives. In other words, to respond to those reminders. God looks into our hearts. He sees into our souls. He himself, right at this moment, perfectly discerns the condition of our love for him. And the question that he would put before us now in response to our text is this. How will you respond to my love for you? How will you respond? Will you tell God today, come what may, by your grace and for your glory, I will love you with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my strength. God, will you give me the grace, the strength to do that? That is God's desire for us as his people. It was in the mid-1800s that a lady whose name was Elizabeth Prentice and her husband were working in a church in New York City. They loved the Lord. And they didn't realize what was coming. Within a period of three months, their second and third child, one a newborn, the other was four years old, they died. They were overwhelmed with grief and loss in losing those two children. Yet their confidence in God and his love remained steadfast. And during that period of loss, Mrs. Prentice took a pen and wrote these following words. More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. Once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest. 
Now thee alone I see give what is best. This all my prayers shall be. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. Would you respond with me in prayer? Oh, Father, we thank you for your word, for your living and life-changing word. Father, we thank you that it is the truth that we need to hear and to live out. Father, we would pray that we would love you like never before for all that you are and for all that you have done for us in Christ. Father, we bless your name that you and you alone are the one and only true God. God, we marvel that you have reached out so far to us to save us, to take us from our sin and make us your own in Christ. But God, work in each heart. Father, show us right now specific areas in which we do not truly match in our words how we live in our lives. Father, show us how we need to be those living sacrifices. Father, have hearts that soar in their love for you. Father, we'd ask that we would be not just hearers, but obedient doers of your word this morning. Father, remind us of these precious truths. Would you sear them to our hearts that our love and our obedience to you will be what it's never been before, that we will walk in a manner worthy of you and love you supremely above all else. Father, bless the marriages in this church. Bless the children, the families, the friendships, the ministries, the love for your heart of missions. And God would ask that supremely it would all be done and empowered by our responsive love for you in Christ. Father, we look forward to the day when we are gathered around your throne where our love will be complete with all the redeemed of all the ages. We will declare the greatness of the Lamb of God who demonstrated your love for us in being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, we thank you for our precious Savior through whom you prove your love for us. God, may we walk in joyful, responsive obedience to you this week. May Christ and Christ alone be on our lips, be seen in our lives, we pray. We ask this, O God, for the praise of your fame. In Christ's name, amen.